This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, corporate America is buying, is issuing debt right now at levels not seen in a very long time. U.S. corporate debt loads reached the highest level in a decade, and that, of course, is raising concern that it may be harder for corporate America to navigate a downturn. To get more on this, we welcome Molly Smith. Molly's a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Molly, thanks so much for being with us. I loved uh, the article that you and the team worked on uh, in the last, uh, I guess, today. So it sounds like I think we came into the year, or maybe 18 months ago, we were hearing from corporate America that they were actually going to deleverage and begin maybe preparing for a slowdown in the economy, but that doesn't seem to be happening. It really was the story of pretty much this entire year. We called it the dead diet, that a lot of companies had come into 2019, that this was going to be a huge focus for so many companies that we're all very familiar with. And to their credit, most of the so-called poster children like AT&T, AB InBev, GE have fulfilled those promises. But when we look at this on an aggregate level of the entire investment grade market, leverage is broadly unchanged from a year ago. And there are so many other companies beyond just those three that I just named that have also looked to delever their balance sheets and that hasn't really happened yet. So that's where the concern is now as to why that isn't happening. So is this a result of companies selling more debt or is it because their revenues are coming down. So, of course, leverage is both, right? That's um, obvious. That's both parts of the ratio there. And a lot of it, it's definitely new issuance. I mean, we've seen like September has been, I think it was the third busiest month on record for issuance ever in the investment grade market. And we saw right out of the gates from Labor Day, just like records being shattered across the board in terms of deal count and total volume of issuance. So companies have definitely read the Fed. There is low, There are low rates to be had, cheap borrowing, and it's, it's up for grabs. And a lot of companies are for sure taking advantage. So my question is, is this really a problem or is this just, you know, if I'm the corporate treasurer, I go to my CFO and I say, wow, look at these rates and XYZ Investment Bank just pinged me. We can do, you know, a billion dollars here. It seems like you kind of have to, don't you? There's that incentive, and there's also the fact that in the stock market, you're kind of you're being rewarded for this again. Whereas that wasn't the case for a lot of this year. That uh, that equity investors were liking the deleveraging story and rewarding companies for uh, for taming the balance sheet a bit. That's not happening now. As um, I think that equity holders are equity holders are a bit taking more comfort in the fact that the Fed lowering rates has given these companies a longer runway so that they can go into those more highly levered balance sheets again. One of the most startling aspects of the story that you co-authored uh, was the statistic that Morgan Stanley thinks that 40% of the investment-grade credit universe, corporate America, have leverage ratios that are more in line with junk ratings. Wow. What are the implications of that? And we did a story of that um, on our own analysis similarly last year and looking at it really just in light of um, companies that have done large-scale M&A. And similarly, we found that about half of those companies, 50 who have done the largest M&A deals of all time, had leverage consistent with high-yield companies. So that's been out there. And to see that it's still happening at about that level a year, ago, a year later 
is concerning, but it is also like credit raters will say that leverage is not the only metric they use to assess a company's credit rating. It's definitely up there, but there are other factors such as the management and other things that a, co- that a credit raters will look at when determining how a company should be rated. That's where I wanted to go to kind of what the agencies are saying these days. Are they are we seeing more kind of companies put on negative watch or are we seeing the rating agencies just trying to wave the flag a little bit saying, hey, guys, that we're getting a little bit over our skis here? It's it's definitely difficult from their perspective because agencies like they obviously want to like mitigate some volatility in ratings and they understand how important it is that for indexing purposes, especially with when it comes to the case of the triple B's that since with a company has two out of three major credit raters that put it in high yield, then all of that debt then moves into a high yield index. So they certainly don't want to cause undue volatility if then that rating is going to be due for an upgrade very soon. So it's it's a difficult balance on their part. But so far, it seems like the ratio of triple B's in the investment grade index has stayed pretty steady. So, so far, we're looking at a pretty tremendous year for investment-grade credit. Is anyone looking at this data and saying it's time to reduce allocations to the highest levels, highest uh, rated corporate debt? It still seems that IG is getting, I mean, a tremendous boost. We've seen it backed up in the flows. Like, investment-grade, I believe, has only had five outflows on the entire year on a weekly basis. And we're now how many weeks into the year? I mean, that's incredible. So... It seems that, especially because when you're concerned about uh, if the cycle is turning, if that downturn is coming, and that you want to have that up in quality posture within credit, that investment grade is still getting a boost from that. It was a really good story. I recommend that everybody read it. Uh, and we really thank you uh, for being here. Molly Smith, she covers uh, corporate finance for us here at Bloomberg News. Really interesting statistics to sort of highlight the consequences yeah. of the low interest rate environment. But honestly, I mean, can you blame the companies? No. Why wouldn't they borrow? Exactly right. And we said the same thing about the municipal market. I mean, municipal borrowers, why wouldn't you be out there funding infrastructure and things like that? And I think that's probably the argument a lot of people always say at the end of a credit cycle. I think that the biggest concern in my mind is that they're borrowing this money and they're not able to increase their revenues with it. I mean, the idea with leverage is you borrow to build for the future. And if they are unable to build for the future in a way that can be profitable uh, or give people confidence that they will be more profitable, that's where the concern uh, comes into play. It depends on the day what type of message you get when it comes to U.S.-China trade talks. And we are preparing for China's top trade negotiator to lead a delegation to the United States uh, in the upcoming days. Here to join us, Andy Brown, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director who spent a lot of time in China. Andy, I want to start there because you have some insight into the potential thinking of the delegation coming to the United States just based on your sense of the culture and, and your experience in China. Do you have a sense of whether things are progressing behind the scenes in a way that perhaps uh, people don't realize based on the mixed messages coming out of Washington? Sure. Look, I think on both sides, on the Chinese side, on the U.S. side, there's a recognition that a protracted trade war is going to be terrible for both economies and for the global economy. Ultimately, Donald Trump needs a trade deal to take into the election. The question is what kind of deal they're going to put together, what's possible. It's pretty clear that a comprehensive agreement, an agreement of the type that's going to fundamentally change the nature of the Chinese economy, 
is impossible. China is quite simply not going to buckle to Trump's pressure. Uh, tariffs haven't done it. Uh, China's share of global trade continues to expand. And so now people are talking about an interim trade deal or a mini trade deal, one that sort of gets us not quite back to the status quo, but at least stop thing, stops things from falling apart Altogether, And I think increasingly there's a sense that that type of deal may be possible. Having said that, it does not alter in any way the long-term trends, which are towards increased decoupling of both of the U.S. and the Chinese economies. So, Andy, that's kind of where I want to go to. It's uh, we, the president with this, you know, some of the financial um, market issues that he's been talking about in the last couple of days about the de- delisting of companies and restricting investment into China. That is a, a significantly different tact than tariffs. How do you think that was perceived in China? Yeah, so look, there clearly are uh, officials in Washington, in the White House, who want decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies, um, and they're working their way through it. So we're seeing decoupling occurring on the tech side, increasing restrictions on U.S. technology exports into the United States, restrictions on Chinese investment in startups and companies in Silicon Valley. We're seeing it now on the on the trade side uh, uh, we're seeing it uh, in in area after area and the latest as you say is on the capital market side so people are saying well look you know why should government money through funds be investing in chinese companies operating in segments of the Chinese economy which are not open to U.S. companies. They're saying, why should we allow Chinese companies to be listed on U.S. exchanges and not subject to the type of auditing scrutiny that all other companies um, you know, are, are, are subject to? And so we're, 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 this, is, this is the latest uh, battlefront, you could say. So it's interesting because the U.S. and China actually have dual kind of goals here in the sense that President Trump doesn't want to see growth slow materially uh, heading into the 2020 elections. And China certainly doesn't want to see uh, growth slow much more in a way that they cannot control at a time when they're sort of assessing and trying to push forward the Belt and Road proposal, as well as the new China. I'm just wondering if you could square that with what Greta Thunberg was saying uh, with her U.N. statement about how we can't have sort of high growth economies or even, uh, you know, better growth economies than we have right now if we are going to truly invest in sustainability. Can you give us your, your perspective on that? So, so this, is, this is a great point. You know, what, what, what Greta has done is point to what she believes is a fundamental contradiction, um, you know, a profound dilemma right at the heart of the global economy, which is between growth on the one hand and sustainability on the other hand. And she's saying you can have one or you can have the other but you can't have both. And increasingly, uh, economists, um, you know, researchers, biologists, they're agreeing with her. And they're saying, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, sustainability development goals of the United Nations, which assumes strong global growth in the order of about 3% and harmony with nature, is just not attainable. 
And you know, in her view, and in the view of these uh, of these these experts, the answer is you've got to scale back growth. And and this awful, ugly, awkward word of degrowth is 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 what we're hearing more and more of these days. Well, degrowth sounds like negative growth. So is that suggesting that rich countries, in effect, in order to invest in sustainability, actually have to reduce investment elsewhere in the economy and, in effect, perhaps even contract? Yeah, exa- precisely that. I mean, what what it implies is redis- rather than growing, it implies redistribution from rich to poor. That's with between countries um, and within countries. So within countries, I mean, growth is obviously necessary to improve to improve social well being. Well, you can achieve that through, for instance, investing more in social services, in in, in healthcare, in education, in increasing minimum wage, in decreasing. Uh, the working week, uh, and so on and so forth. Within countries, you can give countries of the developing South. I mean, growth is necessary. We need growth. Poor countries need growth to escape from poverty and, you know, and 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 hunger. Um, but you can achieve that in other ways. You can allow those countries to grow by, for instance, you know, giving them a fairer share of global trade by through debt forgiveness, through decreasing ag- agricultural subsidies in rich countries, uh, by giving poorer countries a bigger voice in the World Bank and the IMF and so on and so forth. That's what these people are really talking about. But it's saying for, for rich countries, sorry, you know, you've overconsumed for so many years. It's time to wind it back. What about the virtuous cycle where you start investing and everyone benefits? Is that a fiction? So, look, you, you've got to unpack this argument a little bit. What are we talking about with sustainable development? So, you know, on, on the one side, on the resources side, it actually means shrinking our materials footprint, the amount of metals, fossil fuels, building materials, biomass that, that we use. On the other side of it, on the emissions side, it means actually reducing our emissions to the point that we don't blow through this two degrees Celsius centigrade that was agreed under the Paris Climate Accords. Does technology get you there? And the answer to that is somewhere between incredibly difficult to impossible. Andy Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Andy Brown's the editorial director for the Bloomberg New Economy. Joins us from the Bloomberg 960 studio uh, in San Francisco, talking a little bit of everything, talking about the China trade issues that continue to percolate, and then talking about the bigger issues of uh, global growth and sustainability. How are those two uh, balanced? Can you have one without the other? Uh, Does there need to be some type of redistribution here of resources? This is Bloomberg Business Week. There is a great article in the Bloomberg Business Week um, coming up by Peter Coy, basically saying the old terms millionaire, billionaire, they're too broad. They don't really, they're not as precise as they need to be to describe well. So to get some more details on what they are, uh, uh, you know, suggesting we think about is Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Peter, give us a sense of kind of what your index is and kind of what it's trying to do. It's essentially, it's essentially logarithms. Uh, all you do is you take the of number and dollars of your net worth, and let's say it's $1,000. Not, not a very wealthy person. What's that? That's 10. 1,000 is 10 to the third power. So you're a three. Uh, if you're a millionaire, a, a single-digit millionaire, that's 10 to the 6, so you're a 6. 
And so the scale goes all the way from the very lowest, which would be one penny, and that's a negative two, 10 to the negative two power, on up to 11, it was 10 to the 11th, which means you're worth $100 billion or more. And really, there's only two people in that category, according to Bloomberg's uh, Rich Index, namely, as we know, Jeffrey Bezos and Bill Gates. Uh, this, just to give you a sense of what the index does, not only does it give you a number, it then tells you what you can afford. And for example, uh, if you have a one or a zero, what can you afford? Very little. This category <laughs> includes people with negative net worth. Uh, you know, and then going up to what can you afford for number 11, space travel, eradication, polio. Uh, I'm just wondering, what, what possessed you to do this? I don't know. I just <laughs> felt I heard a lot. I was working on an article about uh, the, the rich, taxes on the rich. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren came up with the term ultra-millionaire. I thought, well, that's a new one. What's an ultra-millionaire? It presumably means more than one million and probably even right. more than two million. But what does it well, mean? But, I'm sorry. Ultra-millionaire sounds way better than, oh, he's a six. <laughs> oh, he's, no. He's a nine. You like Elizabeth Warren? No, I'm just saying that, you know, it doesn't sort of like, oh, he, oh he's a nine. No, he, but he, like, like Bo let's, Derek, let's, let's crank it up all the way to eleven. Bo today. Derek was a perfect ten. No, this could catch on. <laughs> this could be, you know, you're laughing now. Yes, Lisa, <laughs> you're laughing now. But a few years from now, people say, "Where did that terminology ever come from?" And they'll trace it back to this uh, this radio conversation broadcast. right here. All right. Yes. So, if someone is a six, give us a sense of kind of what they're like. Oh, uh, I don't want to talk about what they're like in a. Well, I just meant like on your, your cool little All table right. here. Like, so that would be Boris Johnson is is a six. Boris Johnson is a six. Okay, so uh, what Gina, kind of net worth is he? Kind of. So so that means he's the kind of person who can afford a second home by the shore. Let's say. Okay. Now these are you know rough approximations. For example, if you're a four, that which means you're worth a thousand, but not ten thousand. I mean, I mean you're worth ten thousand, not a hundred thousand. Then you could afford probably a new car, right? Okay, so, you know, I, we still have our doubts, so we called your editor in to find out what Uh-oh. possessed them to sort of condone this behavior. Uh, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. You okayed this. I totally. I was like, <laughs> I am so in on this. The world needs to know. Uh, but, Peter, when you, when you sat back and kind of looked at it, like, where did you attempt to, like, actually map where the vast majority yeah. of people... Oh, that, that's sit? actually a good question, because um, Bloomberg... Uh, as we know, it tr- obsessively tracks billionaires and uh, estimates that there are about 150 people in the world who have $10 billion or more, which is a lot. And then uh, approximately another 2,700 or between 1 and 10 billion. So for lower numbers, you know, if you're less than a, you know, a billionaire, Bloomberg is probably not going to be tracking you obsessively. But Credit Suisse does do a global wealth report every year. And so they helped me with the other estimates. For example, there are approximately... See, this is real. This is real. <laughs> this is real numbers. Yeah. 40, the Credit Suisse people estimate there are about 40 million people in the world who are millionaires. So being a millionaire just... You know, that's a six. You're, you're, that's a six. Ain't what it used to be, right? Right. Yeah, you're a six. <laughs> I, you know, this Congratulations. Is like, yeah. this, this is a new ranking system, right? Like, you know, someone someone goes out on a date with someone else. Like, what are they? Yeah, yeah. totally. They're, you don't have to wear it on your clothes. Or maybe after the fact, he was a six. Uh-oh. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll there. tell you who might have an interest in this are some of the politicians, some of the Democratic politicians who are going to say, boy, look at these numbers I saw in a Bloomberg Business Week article. They got... 
you know, there's income inequality all over the place. We got, yeah. we got, look at all these sixes and sevens yeah, and we, eights. When we can't change policy, we just try and change talking points. Right. So, yes, we're, we're getting closer. Or, or you know, post-mort date nights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that, I, you know, raises a question also, which is, do governments want to track people in a more systematic way? Which, you know, here we've created an ability to actually scale something that's kind of actually difficult to talk about. It's, it's hard to talk about it. So how do you simplify it? Put a number next to it. Yeah, that, that's sort of, I mean, this could be used for good or ill, as many powerful weapons can. Uh, not I, not I our, it'll be we just for, bring it into the world. I just hope it'll be used for good. So right. Peter Coy created a powerful weapon. Yeah. Joel Weber was the enabler. Enabler. I'll ta- and, I'll, happily, I'll take that. Yeah. And they are joining us here. Uh, you can send them email. They are on. Uh, they do have email, oh, so boy. please now, send now in you your comments <laughs> if you uh, disagree, agree uh, with this ranking system. Either way, it's really I, cool. Check it out in the Bloomberg Business Week uh, edition. It is awesome. Because <laughs> imp- everybody's going to read it and self-identify oh, yeah, immediately. Exactly. Everybody wants a ranking system. Take a quiz. You just you, you know did it for your wallet. There you go. Yeah, exactly. What does it say about you as a as a spender? You can spend nothing. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, we've got trade wars. We've got pending impeachment. We've got slowing global growth. Yet the S&P 500 is testing highs uh, as we speak. To get a sense of where we go from here, we welcome Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, when you think about it, you know, granted, over the last 12 months, the market's kind of flat, but that's a pretty strong performance. Um, you know, if you think about 2019 up double digits in the face of all those headwinds, where do you think equity markets go from here? Uh, Paul and Lisa, thanks for letting me on the show. I think markets will find a way to grind their way higher, and I think there's two primary reasons. One is the markets ultimately look at economic fundamentals, not political headlines, and frankly, the economy is still chugging along okay. And secondly, and equally if not more important, interest rates are pretty darn low, and low rates are the fuel of the economy. And in a world where my 10-year treasury is at one7 I can just take the S&P 500. I'm getting nearly a 2% dividend yield, and I get all the growth along the way. That's a heck of a a compelling comparison. So low yields and solid, if not outstanding, economic growth is a pretty darn good background for um, near-term investing. So, Alan, are you recommending to the wealthy individuals and families that you advise that they uh, go hard, like hardcore into stocks, risk assets right now? Um, gosh, hardcore. That's pretty rough, Lisa. But here, here's the reality. <laughs> well, you said it's trying constructive. To, trying, I love it. It's Friday. Look, uh, it's a Monday. Trying to time the markets is hard enough, but there's a huge opportunity cost if you're going to try and time the top. So it turns out if you miss the last two years in a bull market run, you give up, on average, 41% of the return. 
that's a huge penalty to be out too early. So I get it. Everybody wants to be out at the top and jump back in at the bottom. But this, even if even if you get out 12 months too early over the last, I'm talking over the last 65 years, you give up 23% on average. The markets tend to accelerate at the end of the cycle. Look at the economy today. We're still growing okay. Rates aren't competing. I can give you a pretty compelling case. This economy is going to pick back up between now and the election. Most people academically claim when the Fed cuts rates, the biggest impact economically shows up about 12 months later. Put together a situation where you get the effect of those lowering of rates 12 months forward, and who knows, maybe we actually come up with some agreement with China, which mitigates all the trade uncertainty. That is the perfect formula for markets to rip right back up before we get to the election. So, Alan, don't I need some earnings growth here to drive this market higher? I know rates are low. I know they're probably going to grind a little bit lower, but don't I need earnings growth? And I'm just not sure I see that when I look out at the S&P numbers. That's a great question because this has been a multiple expansion year with very little growth. But what you still see is most of the indicators don't indicate any recession is anywhere imminent. It turns out unemployment claims are pretty low. It turns out we're at a full employment economy. Cyclical spending is actually the percent of GDP up on a rise. It wouldn't be surprising to see uh, economic statistics tick back up shortly, which would lead to earnings growth yet again for next year. So I think this year was a pause that refreshes and you'll get a modest, I didn't say excessive, but a modest amount of earnings growth on the order of 8 to 10% from here to a year forward. And that's enough with the dividend for about a 10% return from here. So what do you think is going to be the worst performing asset class over the next 12 months? I think the worst uh, performing asset class could potentially be energy. I just think it's a very challenged environment. I don't see a lot of catalysts for improvement. The most compelling argument probably to buy into them right now is a lot of these business companies have nice dividend yields. The challenge is if the economy actually rekindles a little bit, rates will creep a little higher and steal some of the traction of that, in fact, the um, the energy stocks. So I think that's going to be a challenge space. So, Alan, you mentioned trade here. I mean, this thing could go any which of a million different ways here. But uh, if and I think the market's kind of discounting today and over the last several days, maybe a little bit of thawing here. But um, how much of a risk to your market call is just trade? Um, It's significant. If you had persistent um, uh, difficulties coming to some trade agreements, the weakness probably actually starts overseas. Most economies globally are far more dependent on trade than the U.S. And then the question is, does the weakness abroad come back into the U.S.? So I think where it's actually more prevalent is overseas weakness, which works its way back into the American states. For the most part, the American economy is okay. We could probably weather some degree of economic uncertainty with these trade wars. At some point, it's got to come to an end, but we're actually not hurt relatively as much as others. You'll see it uh, much more damaging places like Germany and a lot of Asian countries tied to China initially. So that's where it'll show up first. Alan, you've been doing this for decades. You've been advising clients from a number of different uh, different places, including Goldman Sachs, uh, as well as Merrill Lynch. And I'm trying to figure out what investors' response, what your clients' response has been to your advice and whether it's there's perhaps a little bit more pushback now uh, than you've noticed in the past. Well, that's a great question. I would say all things equal, people are a little more emotional about the political environment and a little more uh, opinionated about it. But um, we try our best to try and help people recognize that ultimately financial markets are driven by economic conditions and not political headlines and political outcomes. So 
I think there's been a little more of a motion, but uh, maybe that's why an advisor is there to try and hold people's hands and give them a sounding board to try and stick with a long-term financial plan, which works through different um, political environments. So in the end, I don't think behavior has changed markedly. Alan Zafrin, thank you so much for being with us today. Alan Zafrin is founding partner and co-chief executive officer of IEQ Capital, joining us from Foster City, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.